is Sarah Shackett. I'm the Associate Craft Editor over at IndieWire, and I'm so excited for you to be listening to this episode of the Filmmaker's Toolkit podcast, because myself and Chris O'Fault sat down and spoke to Sterling Harjo, the showrunner and creator of the fabulous FX comedy Reservation Dogs. I've loved Reservation Dogs since it came out last year. I'm still thinking about this show, both because it is so wonderfully refreshing and groundbreaking in the new stories about Native people that it is telling that Hollywood has ignored for all of its existence, but also for the comedy fundamentals that the show gets right. Sterling and his team create a world that has such rich, incredible specificity grounded in a clear sense of place, but that actually unlocks his ability to tell just very human stories. So this is a great interview to listen to for anyone who is thinking about how to write a specific place or a specific community. Sterling also breaks down how he guides a more general audience into understanding and getting inside the perspective of his characters. So this is just a phenomenal conversation all around for creators of all stripes. Filmmaker's Toolkit is sponsored by Insecure for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other categories. The HBO original series Insecure, starring Issa Rae, follows Issa, Molly, and their unbreakable friend group as they continue to navigate formative experiences in the heart of LA. The fifth and final season follows our favorite characters as they evaluate their relationships, both new and old, in an effort to figure out who and what comes with them in the next phase of their lives. All episodes of Insecure are now streaming on HBO Max. And without any further ado, here is myself and Chris O'Fault talking to Sterling Harjo. I'm curious if there's a particular project or something in your background as a filmmaker that really prepared you to make the show or was the foundation for the visual style of Reservation Dogs. Yeah, I mean, I think all of my films trained me to do this because I've made very low budget feature films. It was very hard to get my films financed. No one wanted to see movies about Native characters, and they would tell you as much in the feature film world. And then streaming and TV happened, and all of a sudden, you didn't have to have a star, a name actor, to be at the head of the project. So the door was opened up for stories that hadn't been heard and more marginalized people, and people were more interested in my work after that. So I made all of these low-budget films, and it really... You know, nothing could have trained me better to be a showrunner for 30-minute comedy than micro-budget feature films. I think I actually had more time to shoot my films than I do this show. <laughs> Obviously have more toys and money to play with on this show, but time-wise, it's very fast. How fast is it? I'm curious. It's like four days for a 30-minute episode. You have to make quick decisions, and you have to pivot fast, and you have to be able to problem-solve very quickly, and you know, be ready for anything. And so uh, it's really, you know, being an independent filmmaker really helped in that arena. That's awesome. Am I wrong, though? You brought over a lot of the team from your indie films over to, to over to the TV show, which I don't think isn't necessarily common, but I imagine is maybe part of, of why this show is so distinct, too. Yeah, I mean, I brought a lot of friends over. For me, making the thing is the most important thing to me. You mean like process? Yeah, the process of making the show is the most important thing to me. The, the experience of creating it is what I love. Once it's out, there's not a lot you can do or say <laughs> about it. I think everyone on the crew would tell you this, like, we have a good time. 
It's about helping each other. It's about supporting each other. It's about feeling safe enough to experiment and try things and, you know, try to find the best thing that you can do. And that's from directors down to PAs. Everyone has a really good time. There's a sense of like community. There's a sense of fun on the set. And for me, that's the most important thing. I couldn't do this. Like you hear stories about people that are like tyrants or screamers, or I, I, I could not go to work if that's how I wanted to do things. It wouldn't be worth it to me. That makes a ton of sense. And it also seems like it brings over a little bit of a micro-budget vibe of just everyone sort of pitching in and doing whatever whatever needs to happen. Yeah, for sure. Everybody's wearing a couple hats. Also, like, I have really good friends that I hired as my directors, you know? Like, I, one of the benefits of coming up and, you know, there was sort of this subculture uh, within the film industry of Native and Indigenous filmmakers. And we sort of stuck together and we went to festivals together and we showed our films together and, you know, we traveled to different countries together and it became for lack of a better term a sort of movement even though it was just people hanging out and doing similar things and from similar backgrounds but the benefit of that is we got to know each other i got to know everyone's work i've been hiring some of my closest friends as directors and writers on this show and it makes things really easy to do that and 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 also that sense of community is there all the way so even in the writer's room or whatever it's just a lot of fun and you know i can't believe that I'm allowed to do it. You know, like a lot of times I, I really honestly like get up and I'm like, wow, like this is my life. Cause it's honestly like reservation dogs is the show that I always, if you would have ever asked me like, what would you want to do if you had one thing, it would be this show. And it's also the show that I never thought I'd ever get to make because I didn't think anyone would ever make this. I remember I had, you know, I sold a few TV shows before Reservation Dogs and I had producers on another show ask me, did I have any other projects? Seeming like they would want to work with me on something else. And they were asking me if I had anything else. And I pitched this show and you could just sort of see them glaze over. There was no interest at all. You know, that show didn't get made that I was working on with them. And this show, obviously, you know. Uh, they know about it now. So I, you know, I get some sweet revenge somewhere in there in my head that, 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 that they were not interested in the show as successful. Amazing. I'm curious, is that the doors that Taika Waititi can open? I think so. I mean, it's three things. It's Taika opening a door for me. It's also FX giving me freedom. And it's also having to deliver. The last thing you'd want to do is your friend opened the door for you and you fuck it up, you know? <laughs> so it's just been really important for me. And Taika and I were friends for a long time. And we, a lot of times we would talk about how funny the stories are from our home, where we're from and our communities. And, you know, that's never been reflected on screen, like ever. You know, Native people were always serious and stoic. And to me, that's, you know, the biggest lie um, because our communities and our people are very funny and our stories are really funny, full of wit, sarcasm, self-deprecation, like... So I mean, everything. And so we wanted to sort of celebrate that. And that's where the show came out of, really through our friendship. And I think this comes right back to, there's the sense of humor in the show. It's very funny. And there's this wonderful balance, this way that the sense of humor and also this world works. It's an amazing thing that you pulled off in this first season, Sterling. But I, I'm curious, and I go back to the pilot, there's almost a lot of heavy lifting, I have to imagine. I don't know if Taika was part of this. Figuring that balance out and how that was going to work. Or is this just kind of, this is your voice and this is <laughs> that balance is just something that's there? Yeah. I don't think that I, it's something that I've always wanted to do. Like all of my films, even the more serious ones have humor in them. And it's been my goal to have, you know, like I'm a big fan of Hal Ashby and, you know, these films that walk that line. 
Tank and I talked about that a lot. I think it's naturally there, you know, like I think that that is an indigenous native sense of humor, which is humor that is about survival, always butting up against tragedy and drama. That's what makes it funny. And that's what gives it its rhythm, the back and forth, sort of lulling you in between these two things, which I think is hypnotic for an audience. It was honestly kind of effortless in the way that like it wasn't thought out. It wasn't like this grand scheme or like plan, like, you know, it's the way that I write. And especially if I'm writing, like I did the first draft of the script, and especially if I'm writing sort of in me and Taika's sort of collective voice together is one that we're always telling funny stories and hanging out. And that's just how we get along. So telling the story, like that's sort of the tone is like he and I together, you know, is the, is the funny, but like, I don't know, like that's what makes it native. We find humor, even in some of the darkest times or circumstances, it's about being able to laugh. And I think that was key to survival. And I just think that it's ingrained. I mean, like I've always tried to capture the way that my family tells stories just over coffee at a kitchen table and the older people in my family, you know, it was a tight community and you all hang out. And I was, as a kid growing up, I would always just absorb these stories and have them tell me these stories over and over and over. And they were never huge. Like they weren't like epic stories. They were small, like going to the grocery store. But the way that they described it, the humor in it, what what happened inside of it was so big and epic. And I always wanted to capture that in a show. You know, Reservation Dogs is just about kids that want to leave their town and go to California and they lost their friend, which on paper can sound small, you know, but it's about how we tell it. It's about the fact that spirit, William Knifeman's there and like, yeah. and the balance of this humor and, and sadness and drama. I mean, I think William Knifeman is a key element to kind of introducing non-native people to native humor. I think of that character, and it wasn't necessarily planned out. I, I think that it's just a necessity that I knew needed to be there. Later, it feels like it was planned out because I think it was quite a good idea to have this character that is very familiar, iconic character, someone in buckskin, someone talking like that, someone on horseback. That is what we think of. That's what most non-natives think of when, when they think, if you were to say, draw me a Native American, most people wouldn't draw me. They would draw William Knife Man. That character helps bridge that gap of like, here it is. This is the stereotype that you believe in. And yes, there is a lot of truth in that, but isn't it silly that that's what you still think we are? Now let's all laugh at it together and let's keep moving through this show together as we just spent the last 10 or so minutes showing you these contemporary kids that you've never seen before. It opens with, I want to be your dog uh, by the Stooges and it drops you into this world and you kind of have to catch up. But then there's this moment where William Knifeman comes and it's like, okay, I get this. I know what this guy is because I've seen Dances with Wolves. I've seen all of the Westerns throughout history. So I know at least what he is. It helps ground people, but then also bring them into that sense of humor, I think. So, um, and just, you know, I sort of recognize that by watching with audiences and hearing people's response to that pilot episode and seeing William Knife Man for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And even like, it's it's so interesting to me how he's shot in the pilot versus how he just kind of pops up in a more integrated way in later episodes. Right. Like you don't need the sepia tone, like fisheye lens kind of stuff. That feels intention like an intentional progression over the course of the series. For sure. I just like to watch, we watch the one the doctor's like, there's just this walk by and he's just in the, at the next examining room. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> totally. No, I mean, we decided to do that where it was like, had to be this epic intro to his character. And also, well, 
what would this spirit who's sort of full of himself, what would he imagine his spirit world looks like? You know, well, it looks like sepia tone, there's fog, you know, and it's like sort of the world that he presents to uh, the character Bear, I think. One of the things I love about this series, and I, I think it's probably true of almost all of, the, all of my favorite things, is it has such an incredible sense of place. And by the way, there's a lot of people who write stories from where they're from and they don't have that sense of place. And so it's not just, you know, but when you feel that, when that is so ingrained in the story and so ingrained in the characters and we have, like, I've never been, I don't think I've been to where you've been shooting in Oklahoma before, but I just, it, it, I smell it. I feel it. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you shot and because I think you, I, maybe I'm wrong. I think you go to a few different locations throughout Oklahoma, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah, we do. I mean, like we, we mainly shoot uh, in the Muskogee Reservation, which covers Tulsa all the way and then goes way south, like where I'm from, not way south, like an hour and a half south. But we shoot in the town of Old Mulgee and then the town of Tulsa and mostly Old Mulgee, which is the capital of the Muskogee Creek Nation. It was always important to me to shoot here in Oklahoma. I grew up in rural Oklahoma. You know, when people think of like rural sort of Southern states or Midwestern Southern states, they don't think of native people. You think of it very differently. And I knew that it was just an interesting way to grow up. You know, like I grew up in this little town and the difference in Oklahoma is that there's not as much segregation with native people. So like native people, black people, white people grow up together. Growing up in rural Oklahoma, that was sort of the three, you know, people that were there. And like you learn from each other, you grow up next to each other. And for me, there was less racism because of that. I felt less racism. And that was just the interesting way of growing up. Also, the landscape being the way it is, like I think Oklahoma has a very unique look to it. And I really wanted to shoot here. To FX's credit, like at first they wanted to shoot in New Mexico, but I was just like very against that because where native people live is so important. I think if you're telling a native story, it's like our connection to the land is so important. And also the people that we're talking about got here by forced removal by the U.S. government. So that already tells a story and has subtext to my show that is never spoken about, but is there. And I think that adds this level of tension and I don't know, like a background to this place that I think you don't get. Like, I couldn't just shoot this anywhere. So when FX asked asked me to shoot it in New Mexico, I was like, well, I told my agents, I was like, but I'd rather not do the show. And of course they were like, fuck are you talking about? Or I'll change the story to where it's not an Oklahoma tribe, it's a New Mexico tribe and we'll shoot it there. And to FX's credit, they, you know, I went and I took a lot of photos of rural Oklahoma and I wrote a letter about why I thought it was important to shoot here. And FX, like, just agreed. They were like, cool, well then, you know, let's do it. And I think that they're very happy with that decision. And I'm also very happy with that decision. It, it's given this place, people are so happy to have us here. The local film community is so happy to have a, us here and have work here. And it's building infrastructure and it's bringing money into really like poor towns, but also just aesthetically. Like, it's amazing. You just have everything. And you have, like, you know, nature, but also the decay of, like, Western expansion that's sort of sitting there. And these kids, it's like their playground, you know? I just really love it. I I love being able to shoot here. And it it, it just, like, it is a character, I think. I think that the, the setting is a character. 
Christian Spranger shot the pilot, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, and, and right. he had right. great photography throughout, but there's something I think, and maybe I don't know, but there also seems like a certain choice in terms of time of day, and because I, I always think of Oklahoma, it's going to be hot <laughs> and blazing sun, and not that I don't, but there is a sense of um, a feel that I feel like you kind of captured in that pilot with Christian that kind of was then continued right. throughout the series. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it does feel like in terms of when and how you shoot that too to capture it. Well, I mean, that's pure accident i mean we we shot the pilot i believe in september which is a great time of year because things changing we have the four seasons here so like things are changing and it's really beautiful time of year things are starting to cool down but then we shot the series like right now in the springtime hence the storms you know tornadoes were out last night but it like everything is blooming right now and you have days where it's cold and you have days where it's hot and it's a really great time to be shooting i mean it'd be awful to be shooting in august it's so hot here in the summer maybe not as hot as louisiana but it's like that you know as someone from louisiana <laughs> yes yeah. don't do that it's yes, exactly. terrible yeah so it's been great to shoot the spring even though we have to contend with tornadoes folding them in that, that makes for a great season <laughs> exactly too. that's right that's right i mean what a nightmare by the way like you know you write these things i was gonna ask about it yeah you write these things and it's like oh yeah what's something i haven't seen that much or well oh, okay a tornado episode and also hail and it's so funny because like we start having meetings and it's like you know for this to really work for like vfx and everything to really work we have to the four days that we're shooting it has to be cloudy outside but not raining or lightning like <laughs> it's that specific what we need and then also we we needed to, to, to manufacture hail and the guy that the guy when you know our special effects guy was like looking for hail he was calling all these like veterans of the trade and all of them told him we don't do hail because it's impossible <laughs> like you like it's impossible to do you can't do hail so we're in the middle of a pandemic looking for fake hail there's a company out of london that makes it and for some reason they had like a couple pounds at some place in the in the states we didn't have enough time to get them to ship it because of the pandemic to ship Lord. more hail from London. So we just had a certain amount of hail and we only had a small amount to shoot. And then those days we show up to shoot and every day is overcast with no lightning and no rain. And it was amazing. And, it, and, and the hail worked and like everyone was very happy. And uh, I, I can't believe it turned out the way. It was one of those things where you prep really hard for an episode and you're prepping for all this stuff and you're really worried about it. And then on the day, it, it, everything could, it could, it was one of the easier episodes to shoot, honestly. That's awesome. And it feels like a wonderful culmination of a lot of things that you're trying to string throughout the season, the sense of community that pulls people back in. Right. I wanted to ask you a little bit about episode six, because there's some interesting like decisions with the trail cams and the yep. different lighting choices for the flashback with Daniel and, and the stuff with Willie Jack in the present. Yeah. And I'd love to sort of get a sense of like, as an episode that you directed, how you approached that, how you conceptualized that and, and then executed on it. Yeah, I'm most proud of that episode. And it was like kind of the North Star of the show for me as I was, we were writing it. It was like, I really want to do an episode where I just get two characters in the woods. And I wanted it to be Willie Jack and her dad. I just thought like, you know, like I hunt and that's kind of, it's a kind of about me and my dad, honestly. And, you know, like people, when they get out alone in the woods, I don't know, you, there's something about like, it's like therapeutic. And I think people open up and talk more about what's going on and they might tell each other what's 
bothering them, whereas outside in the real world, they wouldn't. Or, you know, if you're alone in the woods, you are more vulnerable, I think, to your feelings and what, and you're alone and you're, you're sort of digging out the stuff. And, you know, as far as prepping that episode, it was all going to be in the woods. First, you have to figure out how to get trucks and everything and gear and all that down there and hope that it doesn't rain, all, rain you out. But really, it was just about, I think with that episode, it was going to be beautiful no matter what, because it, you're sort of in this backdrop of forest and green. And so it was going to be beautiful. And I just wanted to, you know, I used a lot of steady cam. I just wanted to keep things moving because it was a kind of such a still moment where um, people are sitting down for a long time. Anytime that we weren't sitting down, I tried to keep the camera moving sort of still lyrical in a way i played the the creature that they see that you see in the beginning i was gonna ask <laughs> yeah, amazing. yeah and, uh, <laughs> i think that the trail cam was just like i don't know i wanted to break things up again because we're in the woods it's going to be all green we're in one location i needed to break it up visually you know i don't know like for me that that you know like, and the way that i shoot is because we're in the woods and there's so much sitting around, I would shoot long takes. And I also shoot that way anyway. Like I won't wait till the takes over to make an adjustment. I will keep rolling and I will walk actors through it. I'll make them back up and I'll keep doing things over and over and over. And I remember one take, I, th I think the first AC said it was like 45 minute take. When I said cut, he's just like dripping in sweat and like, you know, cause he's pulling focus and like, focused it on this thing that took so long but i always just like to get things right and it's like i think the benefit to, to being the showrunner is like every nuance i get to create if it's not working so like i can like stop okay go back to this line i want you to say it like this go back to this line say it like this all right do it again how about this all right let's move on all right let's change this line what if we change it to this it sounds more natural and so there's a lot of that you know um but i'm really proud of that episode I think it does a good thing of like mixing humor. What I what I really want to try to capture with the show is the mixing of the humor and and drama. Um, and I also think that I think that sometimes TV and sometimes filmmakers can shy away from being sentimental. And I think that's an episode that's sentimental without being a bad version of sentimental sentimentality. It's the way you present it, you, and, and it's also the way you undercut it with humor. But like, it's okay to love somebody, and, and the show is about loss, so it's okay to, you know, to show people grieving. I think, and 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 the way that that grieving is expressed is by two characters that are that trust each other, and they're in pursuit of an animal in the woods. So I don't know. Like, I, I'm I am really proud of that episode. As you should be. It's it's wonderful. Thank you. And I'm curious as as like a facet of that. It feels like this wonderful progression of the blending of the mundane world that the kids want to leave and also sort of these elements of of spirit and myth that are so present. Did you sort of think about like okay, we'll start with a spirit and then we'll get the dear woman in and then we'll find like do tall man or sort of how you thought about those mythological elements. Yeah, I mean, that was always really important when Tyke and I were talking about the show, because those stories are so matter of fact, I think, in our lives growing up in a Native community. They're not, it's not presented in like, I think that's what Hollywood always got wrong is it's like, okay, like, let me sit down and around a fire and I'll carve you a piece of well, you know, a cane or a flute and we will present this in a very earnest way and I will tell you a story about this mythological creature or whatever. Like, I wanted to fight against that and I, I needed to present it the way it's presented to you as a child, which is truth. 
it's not a fantasy. It's I, I, I forever. I believe that there was a dear woman out there that you had to be careful of and check their feet. I mean, like I had uncles that told me that story that they picked up a hitchhiker and realized that she was a dear lady, you know, like it's told it's just in your life and everything's presented in such a factual, just a very truthful way. And it's just not, no one makes a fuss about it that that's how I wanted those elements to be um, presented in the show. It's like, I don't want to explain them. I don't want to, have to tell you they're coming. I just want them to appear and you either come along or you don't. And I think that because I'm not pandering to the audience and over explaining anything, I actually think that they like it better and like sort of are, are more on board with it because of that. Oh, absolutely. If it's believable to the characters, if it's believable to the creator, you know, the audience will follow, right? Yeah. I was very nervous about that though. You know, like on paper, it's very nerve wracking, but when you start putting those elements together visually, and all of a sudden you have a dear lady that's there and you have actors that are playing these people that are interacting with the dear lady, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is totally doable. And the only way to make it really work is by not over explaining it. It's just showing it, you know? And all of a sudden, I don't know, it works well. Um, I've learned to trust that more. You know, that, that maybe this tees up my last question here, which is that, you know, Season one was so great. You're in a trailer right now, uh, shooting season two, and I'm not, I'm not going to ask any storylines yeah. about where you're going, but I am curious though, because you always, you always take those lessons from the first season. And I'm wondering, you know, those things that you want to build on and those things you want to be like, we're not going to, we're going to do a little bit less of that. And I'm, I'm wondering, you're talking about this and talking about learning to trust it. Right. I'm wondering what it is from season one that you are, you know, you, you kind of, when you got the room back together, you're like, we want to build on this. We right. wanna, I mean, you got stories. I know that, but I mean, things that you right. did that you want to lean into. Well, I think that part of the key element, and I hope, you know, who's, who's no, who knows, season two hasn't come out yet, but for me, it was important to not try to overdo things because it worked on the first season. It was important to show restraint and to keep people wanting it because that's what people liked about the first season or part of it is that like we didn't, we gave them tastes of all these things, you know, spirit comes back, but like he's not in every episode. And the magic sort of realism isn't always happening. And and it's just like peppered throughout. And I didn't want to, just because it worked once, I didn't want to overdo it and rely on that. You know, it definitely happens again, but like, I just didn't want to sort of wallow in that, you know, and be like, okay, I'll bring on all of the mythological creatures now, you know, and all of a sudden I'm making Narnia or something, you know. Well, it does feel, it does feel like maybe there's a theme here in that sense of, and I don't know if this is in the writing, but also in the in the editing, it, but also it, in general, pulling back a little bit, a little bit less is more kind of like, well, that's kind of one of the things I'm hearing throughout this interview. For sure. I mean, I, I think that the main notes I get are like, a little too subtle, you know, like, cause that's where I go. That's where I lean towards. I'm a, like, I, I like the minimalist style of like not giving too much. Mm-hmm. I like that. But I also think that that works with the pace of native humor and native storytelling. Also sort of Southern small town, rural storytelling, you know, like I'm a big, like American, like a, like a Southern Gothic fan, you know, like I love that type of storytelling. Um, and, and it takes its time, you know? And I think that, subtlety and taking your time sort of like are one and the same a little bit they they help each other out so less is more always for me and i don't know what the show would be if we got too crazy (laughs) that's fair enough there's a perfect amount of 
catfish shop as someone from Louisiana. Yeah, well yeah, done. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's more of that coming. So Brilliant. get ready um, for the catfish. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> Phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited. I did want to ask about creating, because not only, you know, is it sort of you and your community of filmmakers who are who are getting to do something like this for the first time, but you you found an incredible cast. Um, and I wanted to to ask you about working with Angelique Midthunder oh. and what was the collaborative process like between you and her? Yeah, Angelique is someone that I've known for a while. She, I was working on a um, show called Scalp as a producer. Uh, Doug Jung hired me as showrunner, creator of the show. It was my first job in TV. It's sort of when I realized that TV was open to doing native things. The show was never, never went past pilot, but I, wore, I, was, I was a producer on Worked with Angelique. She was doing sort of local casting there. And I just really liked her style. I, she knows Native communities really well. And I got along with her really well. And I really wanted to work with her because I knew that she would be down to help and to, and to like really do it the right way with me. Because the problem is, and I think the myth is that like um, there are no Native actors. I've heard that a lot. I've had projects die because of that because of the thought that there are no native actors and it's like yeah you know there are but like and there's not a lot in hollywood you know like there's not a lot of jobs for native people out there like a western comes out once every however many years you know and um it's not that fun to play the same parts over and over and over so um i knew that we had to go to these communities and find the people that we were looking for so we just like every way possible collaborated and worked together we did street casting where we would go into communities and people would just come in i mean lane factor is a great example who plays cheese the kid like did not want to come audition he'd just taken his first acting class because his mom wanted him to play less video games uh, his mom convinced him to come to the audition and he made it all the way through and was cast and, and became cheese, you know, literally goes off to work on Spielberg's next film right after we did the first season. And, and that's a kid that never had done anything before. And that would not have happened without the freedom and so that FX gave us and also Angelique and, and how good she was and how much she believed in that process as well. What is the right process? Like what, if you could sort of describe how that worked a little bit. The right process was going into the communities and helping create these performers and actors because Native people haven't been given the opportunities. And so it's not a viable option for us because there haven't been any shows. There haven't been a lot of movies. You know, we're casting a show about Native kids. Most Native kids don't even think it was an option to be in a TV show, but now they do. So that process was about going to them instead of waiting for them to come to you, you know, and that's what we did. We went into native communities to cast these. And if we didn't do that, it wouldn't be the show and it wouldn't be as good. And we might not even found them. So that was the process, not being lazy, going to the communities in which you're trying to depict, because you have to keep in mind the history and how little opportunities they had. I, I bet the next show of Native Kids is going to be a lot easier to cast because of Reservation Ducks, you know, because they it's all of a sudden it's an option. And all of a sudden there's going to be so many Native kids that are interested and that want to be involved in this type of work. Yeah, and that's what a good casting director, especially when dealing with younger uh, actors, I mean, so much of it is people that can understand their comfort level, understand making them feel comfortable, right. but also being able to kind of see what their capacity is, you know, beyond, because if you don't have right. that experience and you, you hear that for all people, but you always hear that about great kids. Right, great, for sure, for that, sure. That element. 
So yeah. there's also a, I, I'm one curious about casting is, is that your group, your, your, your main group, did you always think about, is that something where you had to find the kids together? There was like an element of how they played together to a certain degree. We got really lucky, man. I, I, I we got really lucky. I didn't really know what it was going to be like until like a couple of days before we started shooting the pilot. Wow. I mean, we cast them. We were with them for an hour in LA and that's it. I didn't know what it was going to be like when they're all together and they get there a couple of days before we start shooting. I just start reading the scripts and talking through it with them. And then it was just like they'd been friends forever as soon as they were on screen together. It was pretty amazing. You could feel, I was wondering, they'd have a rapport. That's interesting because you could feel it too. I, I don't know, maybe, that, maybe that's yeah. the writing, but you do, you do kind of feel it to a certain degree. It is the writing, but it's also, I think you have Devery, who's older. She kind of looks out and is, and is more experienced than the others. And then you got Lane, who's the youngest. And then you got Willie J. I mean, they sort of are those characters in a way that they, they mapped onto it. Yeah, yeah, that they mapped onto it and they fit really well. And like they are, they, they do treat each other like those characters kind of. Yeah. Eventually, and then you kind of write, just write then eventually you start writing a little bit more to the Yeah, end. like Willie Jack was actually a character that was a, a boy. Yeah. Especially with Lane and Paulina, we wrote Willie Jack and Cheese. We sort of altered those roles to fit their their personality because they had such strong personalities and were such good characters that we had to just sort of change it to fit them. Well, Sterling, thank you so much. Um, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you making in the making time for it in the middle thank of production. You. Can't wait for season two. Yeah, thanks a lot. Filmmakers Toolkit podcast is sponsored by Julia for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other categories. The HBO Max original series Julia, inspired by Julia Child's extraordinary life and her long-running television series The French Chef, explores an evolving time in American history. The emergence of public television as a new social institution, feminism and the women's movement, the nature of celebrity, and America's cultural growth. At its heart, the series is a portrait of a loving marriage with an evolving and complicated power dynamic. All episodes now streaming on HBO Max.